welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and today I welcome back to the podcast one of my earliest guests, Karen Gonzalez. Karen is a remarkable woman who truly embodies what it means to see and love her neighbors as God does. She's a writer, speaker, and immigrant advocate who emigrated from Guatemala as a child. She attended Fuller Theological Seminary and has worked in the nonprofit sector for 13 years. Karen's first book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to the Long, was the subject of my first conversation with her where she shared more of her story. In this conversation, we talk about Karen's newest book, Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants and Our Christian Response to Immigration. In it, she challenges readers to elevate the discourse in the church beyond the hospitality to immigrants to empowering them as immigrant neighbors rather than pushing them to the fringes of white dominant culture and keeping them as outsiders. Listen in on our challenging conversation where we talk about just this as we think deeper about what it means to truly love our neighbor as God does. Karen, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I should say welcome back to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thanks so much, Andrea. It's good to be back with you. Yes. And when you were first here, I was looking, it was like three years ago. I was just a few, I think a few months into starting the podcast. And first of all, I'm like, I can't believe she said yes to me. I didn't even realize I was beginning the whole deconstruction, decolonization of my faith journey at all. Like, cause I know I had like you on and Emmy Kegler and Marcy Walker around the same time. Mm-hmm. And I was just starting to like, expand what these voices and stories that I were were learning from and you were one of them. So thank you for saying yes to me then and start when I was just starting my journey. No, thank you. I've actually listened to that episode a couple of times because I'm like, I just remember we connected really well and had a really good conversation. So, well, yeah, and I need to go back and listen, but I know that was the star of you know, Trump and his rhetoric and me being in Mm -hmm. that white evangelical space and being like, wait, this is not actually jiving with what I thought we were learning in the Bible. So your book, your first book, The God Who Sees, really just spoke to me because I thought like, yeah, like this is exactly what I'm seeing as somebody who is of faith and has read the Bible. So your words just really resonated with me and started me on that journey of decolonization and like coming out of white Christian nationalism. So, so thank you for those words from your first book. Yeah. Thank you. I've really enjoyed, I've been following you on Instagram and seeing, yeah, your growth and evolution as you, (laughs) as God reveals more and more God's self to you and the expansiveness of faith. And so it's been very, very encouraging to me. And I did that same journey. So yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about that today. Of course, we're going to focus on your new book, which is called Beyond Welcome. That releases October 18th, which will be probably when this podcast releases. But I want to talk a little bit as we get into the conversation with your own deconstruction journey, because I don't think, again, when we talked three years ago, I didn't even think I knew that word. And as I followed you and we've had some little chats here and there, I'm like, oh, she's going, she's gone down this path too. I just kind of assumed like, no, you've always just landed here. Um, So I think that's an important part of your story that no, like you were part of also this white Christian faith and having to refine and redefine your own faith and your bigger God, more expansive God. So we'll talk a little bit about that too. Um, so before we do, Karen, let's, let's circle back around and just, can you tell listeners just a little bit about yourself, where you are in the world, what your day-to-day life looks like, all of those things that may or may not have changed from three years ago. Sure. 
So yes, lots of changes since <laughs> since three years ago. But um, so I'm Karen Gonzalez. I live in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and I am a writer. I'm a speaker. I'm an immigrant advocate. And I say also an accidental public theologian because it wasn't something I set out to do, but this is where I've ended up. And I used to work for a, a large evangelical organization that resettled uh, refugees and other immigrants. And this is where I really came to sort of face to face with my identity and with doing advocacy with my fellow immigrant siblings. And so that's where I was three years ago. And since then, I've really, um, really evolved to where, okay, welcome is the minimum that we should do with immigrants. And we really have to move beyond that and elevate the discourse into what is our responsibility to our neighbors. And the question I sit with is the question that Jesus asked of the lawyer before he told the parable of the good Samaritan and, you know, the lawyer asked him, you know, who is my neighbor, who is my neighbor. And so that is a question that I sit with a lot because of course my neighbors are not just fellow immigrants, but also people experiencing homelessness, my LGBTQIA siblings, um, all kinds of people who are in vulnerable situations and they're vulnerable because we live in an oppressive empire where people um, are not free, but we have to participate in seeking liberation because it's our liberation too, right? It's a collective work. And that's what I wrote down with your, your new book, Beyond Welcome. I mean, it's really taking the immigration narrative to the next level. Like so often, I mean, we're just trying to get Christians and hum people in this country on board with like the bare minimum. Um, so it is really a next level of centering the immigrant, which is so out of like the realm of what we even think about, honestly. And did you struggle when you, okay, no, take that back, not struggle. We'll get to that. What was your hope, encouragement with writing this book? Like what did, why, why did you think this book needs to be out in the world too? Well, I think what I started to notice is that people kind of get stuck at welcome Mm -hmm. And, oh, I care about immigrants and refugees and I welcome them. And I think our country should too. And that's really the end of people's discipleship and growth in terms of immigration. And to me, that's really not the goal. Um, mm -hmm. Welcome, like you said, is the bare minimum. We have to move into uh, kinship, into solidarity, into advocacy together. And also I noticed that whenever I went around to speak about this, people would always ask me, well, what can I do? How can I get involved? How can I serve? And I wanted this book not to be about that. I wanted this book to focus on being like, who, how do I think about things like yeah. the words I use to describe other people? How do I think about hospitality? What myths have I internalized? How do I view land? Like, do I believe borders are really biblical and we should protect them and secure them? What do I think about movement? Are people just allowed to move around? So these are the questions I really wanted people to sit with and to be changed before they ever seek to engage any marginalized community 
because things are not going to change until we are changed. And then we will come into the conversation very, very differently. And so that was really my goal with this book. And I would say that's what this book did for me. Like it was more of sitting with a lot of things that I haven't thought deeply enough about and questioning my own, like, like you said, it's one thing for me to be on the immigrant welcome team, like that sort of thing, or helping immigrants move in or meeting in the airport. But it's another thing to really sit deeply with these own internalized biases or actions, or like you said, what do we think about the land? Like, I want to talk about that chapter more, because that really challenged, challenged me. I mean, many of the chapters did, but it really is a challenge to think deeper and quit centering ourselves in the story, like we so often do, and to start centering the immigrants. So before we jump too far ahead, I would like to go back, in case folks haven't listened to the first interview that we did, but I will link that up, just if you could share some of your story, because you're an immigrant, you have a passion for this, you are from Guatemala. And I would love for you to just share a bit of your origin story because I think that's what drives your passion for, for this topic. So if you don't mind just going back to as far back as you want. I would love to do that. So I was born in Guatemala and I was born to parents who did not dream of migrating anywhere. In fact, they had both moved from other parts of Guatemala into the city where I was born. And so we lived our lives pretty well. We were, I would say, middle class until the Civil War started in in Guatemala. And I wrote a lot about this in my first book because I wanted people to understand that the Civil War was started by the U.S. And it wasn't, it's, it's the driving factor behind so much migration out of Guatemala at the time that my family left in the 80s. And so we left and we landed in Los Angeles, which is where I lived at first. And then gradually my parents moved to Florida. We were undocumented for the first three years we were in the United States. And it's something that I didn't really share with people for a long time because I felt a lot of shame. I felt that that made me a kind of bad immigrant that's in the media. And so there were even close friends who didn't know that until they read the book because it was such a source of shame for me. And of course, that's something that's shifted for me as I have grown and understood my parents' journey and why they made the decisions they did. And it's also the reality of the system where my parents were in line for an immigrant visa, but it took three and a half years for it to come in. So I would say that I was very much assimilated into the dominant culture. It was my parents' desire. They wanted us to be successful, to do well here. So I mostly grew up in a community in Florida that was very, very white. Literally, our school had no English as a second language program. It was my brother and me and my two cousins we were the only Latinos that we knew. Uh, a couple of years later, there was a big uproar in, in um, government uproar in Panama. And then a couple of girls from Panama joined, but literally we were the only ones that we knew. And so that's how I grew up. And I came to a serious faith that was my own. I always had the faith that my abuelita, my grandmother imparted to me. And I came to make faith my own in college through a college ministry and it was a very conservative evangelical faith. And it's one that I stayed with uh, for 
a long, long time after that, a good decade and a half. And that is a faith that I think I always knew didn't quite work for me. Um, But again, I didn't know there was anything else. This seemed to be the only way to be faithful to God is what I was told. And so even though it didn't work for me because there weren't women, there weren't a lot of people of color, I thought this is the right way and I'm just really bad at it. I'm just not a, a very good Christian. And really it was seminary that changed um, everything for me. It saved my faith. I know that's a strange thing to say because so many people's so many people go to seminary and lose their faith. Uh-huh, but for uh-huh. me, it's <laughs> you think you're me, it with this. It. Talk more. Yeah. <laughs> well, what saved it for me is I finally started to learn some things that I'd never known. Like there are many different ways the historical church didn't practice conservative evangelicalism, that there were so many ways to be faithful to God. There were so many theologians out there beyond the John Pipers and John MacArthur's. And those are the people that I knew that I was told were Orthodox. And so it really opened up this whole world for me. And it also kind of um, woke me up to the, the fact that you know, I always thought, Andrea, maybe you did too, that discipleship was about me being a better person, having less bad thoughts, being nicer to people and not thinking about sex if you weren't supposed to. And and that's what I thought. Yes. Yeah. That's what I thought discipleship was about. And what I grew to learn was that discipleship is not just about me. It's not just personal. That's an aspect of it, but it's really also communal. Like it's supposed to make a difference for the community. Mm -hmm. So what are the structures and systems that are oppressive, that are not life-giving and that are harming, particularly people in vulnerable situations who are very close to God's heart. And so it was a wonderful experience for me. Not that it wasn't hard because of course, evolving is always painful. It's hard to let go of things and it, and you feel betrayed. You know, you feel like you've been lied to. Nobody told me that the whole theology around the rapture, for example, was not even that old. It, it came about in the late 19th century. I thought this was like a historical church belief. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, you know, somebody came up with it. And then it was spread through Moody Radio and the Schofield mm-hmm. Study Bible. And so it was such a relief to learn, oh, this actually is just a theory. And it's mm-hmm. not something that you have to believe to be a faithful Christian. So, yeah, that was a real turning point for me. And I think what happened is I gradually moved out of the a conservative evangelical church. It was gradual um, and then ended up in a mainline church. Um, and you know, there's things I miss. I miss the close community, the people that loved me and held me that suddenly now think I'm a heretic. So it's, that's still hard to wrestle with. I know you're in good company, Karen. I have the same similar part with my story, but I mean, I wouldn't go back. I'm sure you wouldn't either. It's like, what a narrow exclusive, harmful faith. And why would you want to see your God so small when they are so, so 
much bigger, more inclusive, more loving, all of those things. So we share that yeah. part of a story. And I am a, you know, I obviously am a white bodied woman and you're a brown bodied woman. So I think that goes back, I'm guessing to the assimilation, like even, even fitting in with that white Christian evangelicalism, you are really having to assimilate and mm-hmm. be colorblind or play that role of being colorblind to parts of yourself. So let's talk a little bit about that assimilation. Cause you share that at the beginning of your book, talking about those myths of assimilation and the myths of the um, being a good immigrant and just the role they played in your story. I was really surprised. I don't know why, but I guess because I haven't lived, I obviously have not lived in a brown body. And what I saw, you know, like at NSP, like you with all your, your Latina friends and just like embracing that part of you, I was just so shocked to read that there was a part in your life. You said, I wanted nothing to do with being different, with being seen as the brown Guatemalan immigrant. All I wanted to do was blend in and disappear. Ah, that just, it makes me sad to know that was part, I mean, I'm sure it does you, but also to know that's so the part of so many stories of black and brown bodies. So tell me how you were at that point, because that is what your mother wanted. I mean, that's, she was raising you that, and that's even as a school teacher, that is what you were hoping for your students. So this wasn't when you were like 10, you were thinking this, this is like an, as an adult woman. So do you mind talking a little bit about that? And then how your eyes open to no, this is, this is not okay that I am trying to assimilate and just diminish parts of myself. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. And yes, I, I want listeners to know that nobody tells you to assimilate. Nobody says, listen, this is what you have to do. But what you start doing is you start paying attention and noticing that when you erase or diminish parts of yourself, people are more comfortable Mm -hmm. and they are more likely to include you and they are more likely to feel like you belong, like you're one of them. And so that what, what the things that you give up, you start recognizing, okay, I give up these things and now I belong. And so they start being reinforced to you as this is what I have to do. And that's what happens to a lot of us uh, who are immigrants, we start to feel the pressure to do this, but it's, it comes in a very insidious way because nothing, nobody says anything to you directly. It just happens very gradually for you. And so that's what I came to realize. And so I started, I had two personas. I had a home persona and then I had an external persona when I Uh, went out the door. And, you know, sadly, you don't just, you don't just assimilate to a culture in in terms of, you know, speaking English well, and making sure you don't have an accent and being able to, you know, navigate the culture well, but you also assimilate to systems of oppression. You assimilate to everything because you want to belong. The primary goal is that you be accepted and seen as one of the group, right? And so you don't want to stand out in any way. And so that was really my MO. I adopted not just American culture, but American oppressive ideas and systems. And so I wrote in my first book how I was very anti-immigration, even though I was an immigrant, you know? And I also was teaching my students and pressuring them to do the same thing that had been imposed on me, this idea of you have to assimilate and behave in a certain way. 
And when people ask me, well, what about, you know, Latinos for Trump? I'm like, of course that exists because part of assimilation is assimilating to those systems Mm -hmm. as well. And that's why it's, it's so harmful. It's not just a loss of your own culture, a loss of your own language, but it's also a loss in terms of who you are at the center. You know, you start to betray your own community, betray your very self. And so this is why it's so harmful. It's all loss in every way. And so that was my experience. And what changed things for me, things changed very gradually for me, but the beginning of it was actually literature because I was an English teacher (laughs) and I ran across a poem. I didn't even believe in like diverse authors and having, you know, these multicultural additions into textbooks. No, I wrote that down. You said the fact that my black and brown students and I were not represented in in the curriculum never bothered me. There was no room or value for representation when assimilation was the goal. So you are really entrenched. Like this, this white supremacy patriarchy did exactly what it wanted. It set out to do with you. Oh yeah. And you know, when people ask me, well, what about, you know, all these authors are dead white males. And my response was always like, well, they're the best. Mm -hmm. So that's why we read them. And yeah, yeah, it's too bad. Women and other people weren't given opportunities to write, but now we have Nathaniel Hawthorne and Hemingway and all these people. And of course there's all kinds of great writing uh, that's taken place. Um, But for me, again, the goal was, I don't want to be different. I want people to know, that I'm towing the party line. Right. And so, but in this textbook, I ran across a poem by the Puerto Rican author, Martin Espada, who wrote a poem called Tony went to the bodega, but he didn't buy anything. And you can Google it and find it. It's a really um, beautiful poem. It's a narrative poem. And it's about a boy who uh, grew up in a, you know, Latinx neighborhood. And then he goes off to Boston, um, to law school. And all of a sudden he doesn't, he misses the smells and the sounds and the people. And so he ends up wandering around the city and ends up at a bodega, which is a kind of like, um, kind of like a Latina grocery or convenience store. They're small usually. And what's fun about them is you go and they have a lot of products that, you know, Latin people used to cook. And so he just sits on the steps. He doesn't buy anything, (laughs) but he enjoys seeing people who look like him, sound like him, that, um, you know, the smells of the place, like all of these things bring him this great comfort. And the poem ends by saying that at the very end, when he, when Tony finishes law school, he returns and he has an office above the bodega because he's going to serve his own community Mm -hmm. with his skills. And I think it's the first time I'd ever confronted the idea that you don't have to assimilate, that you can actually integrate, that you don't have to erase or deny parts of yourself, that it's not an either or, it's a both and. And that was really the beginning of that journey for me. And it's like you share in your book and you share it towards the end. Um, I finished reading your book this morning and You just talk about, I think back to the way my mother inadvertently taught me to survive in a racist and sexist world by telling me in her own way that life was easier for white people, that they have more opportunities and do not experience the 
exclusion we do. She wanted me to have access to the whole wide world. And the only way she knew how to do it was by encouraging me to assimilate to white spaces and marry into whiteness. Her only solution to help me survive these harmful systems of patriarchy and racism was to teach me to adapt to them. But then you end with, I understand now that my mother did not know how to disrupt the toxic systems that create hierarchies that divide us by race and that exclude those who don't, do not conform to gender or sexuality expectations. My mother could not have imagined that I would have the tools to dismantle those systems, but I do and so do you. And that's, that's beautiful. Did your, was your mother, I know your mother died when you were younger. Was she able to see this, this part of you? Were you able to have this conversation with her while she was alive? No, sadly she died when I was very young. I was still a high school student when she died. So, and it gave me a lot of compassion for her because, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're really young, you feel really angry at the mistakes your parents made. Right. And then something in middle age gives you the perspective to understand, okay, this was their way of trying to help me survive and live in the world. And they didn't know any other way. And Mm -hmm. so now I understand that about my mom and so I have a lot of compassion for where she was coming from. It's a, it's what she learned in her own experience yes. growing up. Right. Yes. And so I have, um, I have a whole completely different understanding of that than I did when I was younger. And, but now I have the tools. I don't have to adapt to these systems and, you know, we all have them is what's wonderful. We don't have to wait for the next generation. Like we can start addressing these things right now. Yes. Um, I was just thinking if you were talking, like just the beauty of like, yes, your mom, our mom, all of our mothers did the best we can, but they passed on this generational trauma, especially to black and brown bodies because they were just trying to survive. But just with your story, I mean, the healing balm that you are, for your generation and the generations to come of like now knowing a better story and living a better story and promoting more healing instead of more wounding. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that is what is so you're so beautifully living out. And like you just said, we have these, you have these tools. We all have these tools. So let's, let's talk about these tools because I think it can be, I struggle with finding hope in this world that we are in right now. And I can't imagine how you do too, because here we are with states like Florida and Texas, you know, shipping out their immigrants, but then is that the, is that the word I should be using shipping out immigrants? Yes. That's okay. what they're doing okay. as if yes. it's a package or something. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, just looking at them as chess pieces and this whole political thing. And so I look at that and I struggle to be hope filled, but I know I read your words and I know you have hope. And I know we have tools. So how, and then I want to talk about the land and belonging, but how do you process all that in the midst of what you're preaching and teaching and believing to and knowing to be true? So here is my secret. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really put any hope in our leaders, not okay. Democrats, not Republicans, not anyone. I don't put any hope in state leadership either. The, you know, Greg Abbott's and the Ron DeSantis's, I don't put any hope in them. And I honestly don't have any other expectations from them. 
Okay. And my hope is with the people, the people that I see doing advocacy at the grassroots, they are the ones that are bringing change. And I don't say that to be cynical. I honestly don't. I'm saying this based on data. You have, for example, something like DACA, which these are the children of immigrants who are brought as uh, brought to the U.S. Um, when they were young, and then now they're they don't have status because their parents were undocumented, right? And so they have this temporary protection that started under President Obama, and it's called DACA, and they're trying to pass the Dream Act for them. Now, the Dream Act is something that most Americans want. Something like 70 to 75 percent of Americans, both red and blue and purple Americans, all of them are in support of this. And yet our legislator, legislators have not had the will to pass the DREAM Act, even though it has so much wide support and it would not hurt them in their home states. They still don't have the will to do it. And so to me, that is such low-hanging fruit. Literally, it will not cost you anything politically, and yet they still won't move forward with it, right? Yeah. So what that says to me is that we can't put our hope in a system because the system is not, you know, we have, we can't sit around hoping that Mitch McConnell is going to bring about change to our system, right? right? And again, I'm not being cynical. I'm just working with the facts that I see. Whenever something good has happened, it's because of advocacy done on the ground. So for example, asylum seekers gathered together, petitioned the Biden administration for work permits while they wait for their cases to be adjudicated. And you know what? They got what they wanted, but whose work was it? It was the work of the people, the people together, immigrants, and advocates together coming together and demanding this from the government. And so the only positive and good changes that I've seen are grassroots. They come from the people. And honestly, on a personal level, to me, there is a kind of hope that is oppressive, that is harmful. Because if I were putting my hope in Joe Biden or Congress, no change has come from there. Yeah. And what happens if I keep praying and hoping for that and nothing ever happens and I'm sitting here and this is my goal is to get movement there. It actually prevents me from seeking creative solutions for praying with my hands and feet and asking God to open up avenues for me to support my immigrant siblings. And so I also think that just hoping can be harmful. And I felt bitter and angry when I was just hoping for them Mm -hmm. to bring about changes. And that's why I don't. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't call legislators or that I'm against people who really support, you know, who really are trying to bring change there. I think let's throw everything at a corrupt system to try to get it to change. What I'm saying is that I am no longer one of those people trying to see change at that level. And I'm more with the people, like, what can we do uh, to bring about change and support them from the grassroots? That's, that's very helpful. You're speaking to me with that. Cause I think I'm still stuck in that space of 
using the master's tools to disassemble the master's house, which is, is not the space to be in. And what you're saying is just so powerful that we can't keep relying on these broken systems. And I know I'm doing too much of that, or I try to answer to people that are like, well, Biden's not doing any better, at, but that helps. Like it's, it's the grassroots. It's we as the people being on the ground or as Jesus followers. And I think, again, that speaks back to your book and why you wrote it and who you wrote it to. So that's very helpful because I think I can still, and many people can get so focused on these, these systems that are messed up to begin with and hoping that they'll be fixed through them. So thank you for that. That's, that's helpful. Let's talk about a little bit theology of belonging. Like I think that, I mean, that could be a whole book in itself. And you have many, many chapters that you go through in your book. But this just really spoke to me because one, it's very challenging. It's like totally challenging our beliefs about this country and borders and who belongs and who doesn't. You say that how we view the land and theologize about it matters in the immigration conversation because it has implications for immigrants. And make no mistake, the question of immigration is ultimately one of belonging, who belongs on the land and who does not belong on the land. When you boil it down, that's what it does come to. And the irony of this is the land that we took, that this country, the white man took, and now we're putting up the borders and keeping people out, but it does come down to belonging. So you start, Karen, with that conversation, where you want to go with it, what's what's heaviest on your heart, and then we'll kind of just, just go from there, because there's I have so much highlighted in that chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So when I started thinking about this, and I thought that for many people, this would be the hardest chapter to wrestle with, mm -hmm. because it is really difficult to think about land in a different way. We are taught to think about land as a commodity, right? People dream of buying their own home, their own space. And it's something we buy and sell. We don't think of it as this living thing, like a living organism like we are. And because of mistranslations from Genesis, we've had this attitude of dominating land, right? Of ruling over it. And in this chapter, I read a lot of indigenous theologians because of the wisdom that they bring to a different perspective on land. And so it's interesting, like for us, and this is not really biblical, it's something that comes to us, I believe, from the Renaissance, the idea that humankind is the very epitome of creation and everything else is below but for indigenous peoples in the Americas, they saw both the creation and the human beings as both being equally important. Not saying that they're the same, don't misunderstand me, but that they're equally important in different ways. The land cares for the people, right? It produces, it's fruitful. So it provides for their well-being. And then the human beings also have to take care of the land. So it's a reciprocity, right? To take a word from uh, Roman Wall Kimmerer. We live in reciprocity. And so, for example, indigenous communities at harvest time would not harvest everything. They would only harvest what they needed because it's important to return nutrients back to the land, right? The land also needs to be fed and cared for. And so that was part of their practice. 
Europeans came in and saw this and thought, oh, these people are lazy. <laughs> They're not harvesting everything when they could, because again, our worldview is you take everything, you dominate the land. And so I learned so much about this. And I began looking at the Bible and looking at what the Bible says about land. And the fact is that God is the creator of the land. He gave us the land to steward. Stewardship is actually the correct translation there rather than dominate. And it's not ours. When you steward something, you're taking care of something that belongs to someone else. It is not yours. And of course, like me, when you borrow something, you take really good care of it, right? You don't want anything to happen to it because it's not yours. And that's how the land is too. The land belongs to God. It was given to human beings as a gift to steward, but ultimately it is God's creation. It belongs to God. You know, interestingly, a lot of indigenous communities weren't Christians, right? Um, but they viewed the land in a way that I think is very biblical in that way, that the land is a gift and that we steward the land and we take care of it. And to me, it sort of testifies to this idea that God is everywhere. God is among us, you know, even if we don't hear messages. And so I wanted to people to consider that. First of all, this is what the Bible says. And I use a lot of verses to support yes. this idea, right? And the Israelites longed for land. That is what they wanted so much. But when they broke their covenant with God, they oppressed the poor, uh, they harmed people, they used the land as a source of exploitation, oppression, disillusionment. Then they came under judgment, right? And God would send prophets to call them back. And sometimes they would lose their access to the land because of that, because again, the land is God's. And so what does this mean for us in the immigration conversation if the land belongs to God? So do I have the right to then tell someone seeking safety, seeking well-being, well, you can't cross the line that I've made here uh, because this is my land and I'm aware you have needs and you have uh you're looking for safety and you're looking for freedom and you're looking to feed your family, but this is mine. And so I wondered how, how does that jive with being a follower of Jesus with looking at vulnerable people in the eye and saying, sorry, this is mine, yeah. not yours. Go find freedom and safety and well-being somewhere else. And so to me, I don't think that's biblical at all. And in fact, this is what hardened borders do. Now, I'm not against there being boundaries around a land. Like, oh, this is the United States. This is Mexico. This is Guatemala. But what we have now are these hardened, militarized borders that just prevent people from movement. And look around in the United States today. There are so many jobs. We don't have enough people for them. So we actually have resources that could not only serve our neighbors in need, but also ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's complementary. And yet people are still, you know, I don't know if you saw on the, on the news, but um, yesterday it came out that 
Venezuelan people who are really experiencing a dire situation in their home country, they won't be allowed into the United States as asylum seekers unless they have family ties here already. And what that means is that very few people are going to be able to seek asylum, even though they're literally fleeing for their lives. There's no food, there's no freedom, and they are literally seeking refuge. And this is what the Biden administration decided. And so for me, this is not political. I don't think Democrats have been any better toward immigrants than Republicans. That is actually a huge myth that exists in our country. Both parties have done a lot of harm with Republicans, maybe slightly less harm. Slightly. Did you just say but, that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Slightly. And it's, it's really, to be honest with you, the Bushes, because they come from Texas, which is a border state, they actually did less harm than a lot of uh, other other presidents. So for me, this is really about what is our responsibility as Christians to our neighbors in need? And should we as Christians be defending nations and borders? Yes. Or should we be thinking about these are human beings made in the image of God? It's my duty to protect them, not to protect some imaginary line between two countries, right? Right. right? And so that's what I really wanted to challenge people to think about. If the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then we have no right to keep people out, especially when we were the ones who went and broke things in their country, as we did in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador and so many places where we're receiving immigrants from today, Afghanistan, um, a lot of these places, we went and broke uh, their systems, their countries, and now we don't want to receive refugees and immigrants from those places. And so it's funny because I gave a lecture at a university this week and I talked about theology of land. And, you know, some students received it really well, but I could tell it was very hard for a lot of people. And I told them, look, this was hard for me the first time I encountered it too. It's really challenging because this is the world we live in today. But here's the thing. Borders haven't always been this way. In fact, if you even go back to the 1970s in the U.S., that border was very porous. People went, it was more like a boundary. People just went back and forth between it. And it was not at all what it is today. And I think the concerns around, you know, drug smuggling and all of those things, the thing is, those things aren't, those things are coming through ports of entry. They're, right. they're being smuggled in. Migrants aren't responsible for that. These are drug cartels that are not even in our countries, right? They're not even in the United States. And so blaming them for that is, is just not where the blame should lie, right? The cartels are responsible for this. And frankly, the demand that there is in this country for drugs as well. Right, right. That's a multi, multi-layered why that problem exists. And so I'm, I don't, I am not as knowledgeable at all as you are on this. So since the seventies and gradually putting up those walls and barbed fences, has it done actually any good? Is it only, I'm guessing only created more violence and disruption. That's the thing in the 1970s, there was a lot less violence, death, smuggling. All of that was much, much less. The more we militarized the border, 
the worse things become. It's it's counterintuitive, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you would think, oh, okay, these people want to move here. I'm going to build this wall. I'm going to put barbed wire on it. I'm going to do all these things and then I'll be safer. But instead you're not safer. <laughs> Actually, you're less safe mm-hmm. than you used to be because people think borders protect them from all of these things, but borders actually create the opportunity for criminality, for death, for oppression, for all of these bad things that we associate with them. The border is the cause. It is not protecting us from those things. And it bears out historically, you know, there are three uh, borders in the world that are the most violent in the world, and they are the most militarized. And that's Israel, Palestine, Pakistan, and India, and the U.S. and Mexico. Again, wow. the most militarized are the most dangerous. And wow. you would think it would not be that way, right? Mm-hmm. So borders that are porous are actually quite safe for people. And it allows, it doesn't divide communities. You know, I wrote in the book about El Paso. So El Paso and Juarez were once one city. <laughs> if you go to like way out in West Texas, And so people would move across back and forth, and that was just a normal part of life. And then one day they built a border straight through the middle of the city. And now all of a sudden you can't go to one part of the city anymore. You know, we saw this during um, the Cold War, right? Berlin was split like that. And it, it suddenly, you know, one brother lived on this side and one brother lived on the West, and now they were separated. It was, it's a very similar thing happened to El Paso and it happened to a lot of communities. In fact, in Arizona, Nogales is, there's like two Nogales. There's like U.S. Nogales and then there's uh, Mexican Nogales in Arizona. And so they're called ambos Nogales, both Nogales, you know, in English, Mm -hmm. because the city was divided with a border. And so these are things that are, to me, are really interesting to think about how we could defend something that actually harms a community and separates a community. And all of a sudden there's no movement because we've just decided there should be a line here. And so our border with Canada, right, is very porous, but it became an issue during the pandemic when they closed it, (laughs) right? And then we got to experience a little bit of that, especially people who live along those places, all of a sudden they can't go to Canada where they used to go and buy meds because they're much, much cheaper there. Now you don't have access to that movement. And so it is challenging. And I have a lot of grace for people who are probably listening to this and thinking that is nuts. (laughs) I can't get on board with that. And I want you to know I was there too. It took me time and both reading the Bible, but also reading the violence in the borderlands, you know, the violence around borders, not just here, but around the world. And that's what really changed my mind. In fact, I read a couple of books about, there's a scholar who's who's not a Christian, uh, but his specialty is borders. And he's written a couple of books that I read. One of them was called Violent Borders. Another one was called White Borders. And yeah, it is, it's something hard because it's a complete paradigm shift, but I think we could change that narrative, if we start having this conversation. 
Yeah. I mean, it's hard because it's complete opposite of what this country was founded on, what everything revolves around in this country as far as land and ownership. And so, I mean, and I'm struggling a little bit, even hearing you talk, like on one hand, I'm like, absolutely. I absolutely agree that that's what God would envision what the Bible says, what indigenous cultures have to teach us. But then I get like pulled back to the patriarchal capitalism that's ingrained in me. And I'm like, but how could that actually happen? Yeah. So it's a lot to, to think about and to process and digest. Can you give me an example of a little bit, maybe how you would envision that maybe to people like me that are like struggling? Like I'm totally on board with it, Karen. I don't mean mm-hmm. to say like, I disagree with yeah. you. I'm, but I'm also like, okay, like realistically, how, how could this work or happen? Cause I, I think this is so biblical and what God intended, but is it actually possible? So if I'm not looking at political systems to like establish this, if I'm looking at like grassroots efforts, tell me a little bit how you would envision it. Cause like one of the things you say, change can and does happen, but requires us to take the first step of reimagining the world and changing the narrative. So like this conversation, yeah. we're reimagining your book, you're reimagining. So help me like imagine implementing this, what that could look like. Yeah. So, well, first I do think the change has to start mentally first, right? We have to change that narrative first. And so I think it really begins with questioning. What is the purpose of this border? Is it accomplishing its purpose? Is it working like it's supposed to? Um, And then what are the alternatives out there that could be? I think for Christians, there's also the question of, is it, a duty of mine as a follower of Jesus to be a defender of borders mm, that's good. or a defender of people, right? What am I supposed to, what am I called to care about? Right. And what does the Bible actually say about land, about who it belongs to, about the way it's supposed to work and not work. Um, so I think that those are important things. And that's why I always, That's why in the book, I talk a lot about, we have to change this narrative. And then I think the way it could work was frankly, the way it used to work, you know, borders, we believe, oh, this has always happened. Um, Before borders, there were just boundaries of countries and borders actually started. um, I'm sure you are familiar or you might remember from from, uh, history class, how there were all these religious wars in Europe for a long time, right? Between Catholics and Protestants after the Protestant Reformation, 1517. So there started all these religious wars that exhausted Europe. So orders came about because there was a belief of, okay, France is Catholic. <laughs> England is um, going to be Protestant and, you know, Denmark is going to be Lutheran. And so, okay, these are now places. If you're Lutheran, go there. If you're Catholic, go there, you know, and this is now a safe place for you to live. Things changed over time. Mm -hmm. And then we got passports and visas and all of these things. But in the United States, between uh, Mexico and the United States, what we had was a sort of communal sort of approach to it that was people would go back and forth across Mm -hmm. the borders. And so we even had programs where workers would come, they would work in the U S and then they'd go back home. Right. And, and that's the way it was. So in the 1970s, this changed after the Vietnam war, 
There's actually a really great podcast about this. If you don't want to read about it, that um, Malcolm Gladwell did in his podcast, Revisionist History, that's specifically about why this changed after the Vietnam War. But after the Vietnam War, that was a war where they were defending a border. You might remember they were right, trying to keep the North from taking over the South. And so the person who was one of the generals, you know, the high ranking officials, became concerned about other borders the U.S. was involved in and traveled down to the U.S.-Mexico border and frankly thought was concerned about this free movement between the two countries because of his experience, right, in this war and then started to militarize the border. And so we don't even have to go that far back in our history to see examples of the way that this could work where you just have a boundary and people are able to go back and forth. We had programs, like I said, where people would come work and go home. What happened when we militarized that border, we made it a hard border is that people who used to go back and forth all of a sudden were like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to stay since I'm not going to be allowed to come back if I leave. And so it stopped that, natural flow back and forth. And so, yeah, it can be done. It has been done before. That's so you know, this helpful. Is, that, that really, that helps in my mind. Thank you for going a little bit deeper into that. Cause that helps me understand exactly how it could work and how it has worked. We had a, a girl, a woman, a student live with us from Juarez, and she actually went to a school in El Paso. So I see how that worked for her because some sort of education permit, she was able to go back and forth. And like you, that, that exactly helps me because if that strict border was there for those education students, it would be like, no, we just got to stay over on this side and we can't ever go back. So, so it has happened and it, it could happen again. It's just getting your mind around around that because we think like, oh, we're moving ahead and moving forward with these borders and barbed wire and guns, but it's quite the opposite. So, okay. Yeah. And if you just look at it and think, well, has it made us safe? No. No. Has it helped any, anyone on either, either side? No. And it's certainly not the Christian or the biblical view. Yeah. Right. Even it's even hurt like the ecology, like animals who used to (laughs) move across because, you know, for them borders don't exist. Right. And so it's even hurt the ecology along the borderlands Mm -hmm. because the wall is now there and animals can't move to access what they need to survive. And so, Yeah, it's hurtful all around, which is why Gloria uh, Ansardua calls it the open wound. And I think it's helpful to think about it that way. It really is something that causes a lot of harm against not just the land, but the bodies that go over this wall or under the barbed wire that are harmed so deeply by this line that's just so arbitrary. And so, yeah, I do think we can reimagine, but we have to start having these conversations and talking about it. I'm not an expert on borders. You know, I wrote this one chapter, but it was interesting, even for someone like me who is not an expert. And I just did a a little deep dive into it and Mm -hmm. learned so much. Imagine if I actually, that was my area of focus, how much more I would have been able to learn about it. And again, so many things about being a Christian are counterintuitive. You would think supporting a secure border 
would make us safe, would be good for people, but it's not. And so our first priority is to care about human beings because human beings are made in the image of God. And so that should matter more to us than walls and fences and Mm -hmm. all of these things that we have built to separate ourselves and to keep people out. I appreciate, again, you going into that because I did not give you a heads up that, and I didn't know that the bulk of the conversation would be on borders. I knew I wanted to talk about that because like I said, that was the most challenging chapter for me to really think deeply about. So I appreciate you diving into that a little deeper than maybe you felt ready for. So thank you for that. Karen, it's already been an hour, so I have to wrap up. I could keep talking to you. Your book, (laughs) Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration. It comes out October 18th, which will be probably the release day of this podcast episode. But tell my listeners all the other places that you can be found because you have your own podcast, a website, you do some speaking events, all of those things. Yes. So I can be found on usually Instagram and Twitter. And my handle is the same at underscore Karen J Gonzalez. I also have a website and that's actually the best way to contact me. If you want to email because I get so many creepy messages on social media that I don't really read those. So, yeah, <laughs> my, <laughs> so my website is karen-gonzalez.com and you can reach out to me in any number of places. And I do have a podcast, but it's, it's a podcast really for Latinas. Okay. Um, so, but you're welcome to listen to it. It is, you know, faith related, but it is talking about things that concern, um, particularly women who are Latinas. So, okay. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. We will put links to all of that in our show notes for this episode and links to your new book, as well as the one that you um, wrote before that, the God who sees. So anything else you want to add, Karen, I've I've kept you for an hour, so I don't want to keep keep asking, but I want to make sure (laughs) that you got to say everything that you wanted to say. No, thank you for having me. It's been great to have this conversation with you again, Andrea. So, Oh gosh, thank you again, just for your time. And I'm so bummed we didn't get to meet more and talk more at Nevertheless She Preached, but hopefully maybe in the future we'll be in the same space, same time again. um, And we will all definitely take the time for more than a quick hi with you. Thank you for listening in on our conversation. I hope it's inspired and challenged you to think at a deeper level. We barely touched the surface of all Karen has to share in her new book, so I encourage you to go buy it and read it and continue to talk about these topics. As always, the links where to buy it and where to connect with Karen can be found in the show notes. Also, on another more personal note, I'm excited to share with you that I'm offering a four-week course called Liberating Eve that starts online via Zoom October 20th. It's not too late to register, but there are just a few spots left. More details and the link to sign up can be found on my Instagram bio at Her Story Speaks Podcast, or you can email me at herstoryspeakspodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.